Um, you'll see he does an appendix on Romans 7. And you say, well, why do an appendix on Romans 7 when you're dealing with, with justification regeneration? Because it has enormous implications. That's why he's dealt with it. Now, we want to we go here today. I think you'll see some of these implications. Look, there are a lot of young people in here. This is not just theology that that has no practicalness, I guess is a good way to say it. You guys are young. A lot of you are single. A lot of you struggle. I mean, what, what are the greatest sinful struggles that true Christians have? Now, I'm not talking nominal Christians. They struggle. They, well, they don't really have a struggle. I mean, typically, they're self-righteous, and they're involved in all sorts of sin, and pride, and... Whatever. They're given to sin. I mean, basically, if you're lost, Ephesians 2, 1, you are dead in sin. And so, we're not talking about people like that. We're talking Christians. You young people, what are the greatest sins you struggle with? Pride, lust, materialism, uh, you know, various forms of idolatry in that sense. Things you don't want to give up in your life that you should give up. Um, he said, this is where practical life is. Now look, there's a way to fight these sins. We know this. We know this. Romans 8.13 is unequivocal in this. And by that I mean Paul is unwavering. Romans 8.13 stands, folks. No matter what you make Romans 7 out to be, no matter what your final conclusion is on Romans 7 and who's being talked about in verses 14 through the end, you cannot shy away from Romans 8.13. It's an unshakable text. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Clearly, eternal death and eternal life are being talked about. How do we know that? Well, because if it was only physical life and physical death, who do you know that lives forever? Obviously, Paul is talking about people really living who put to death the deeds of the body. And so he's got to be talking eternal because all die, right? When In a physical sense, it's appointed to each one of us. Isn't that what we find in Hebrews 9? It's appointed to each one of us to die and then the judgment. So I'm, clearly he can't be talking about that because his whole assumption is some live. Can't be physical death because all die. So folks, if you don't put to death the deeds of the body, you cannot live. Because true regeneration produces people who fear God, who love God, who become obedient to God, who triumph over the flesh. So let's think for a moment. Romans 7. 
Begin reading with me in 14, verse 14. This is, this is where the real controversy seeks to arise. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay. Now, let's look at this a second. There are those folks that would say, well, clearly, I just described a Christian to you guys. Okay? Everybody, everybody has heard that, I take it, in this room. That basically, verses 14 through verse 25, is describing a Christian. And here are the main two reasons why. For one, in verse 14, Paul all of a sudden begins to talk in the present tense. So it sounds like he's definitely talking about himself as he was, as he wrote the letter to the Christians at Rome, which definitely was as a saved man, even more than that, as an apostle. The other thing is, it clearly says that he delights in the law which seems to be very reminiscent of what would be true of a child of God. They would delight in the law, after all. Didn't David delight in the law? You go back to Psalm 119, and clearly he makes statements just like that. So, this is a Christian. And then we come along, and we sit here 2,000 years later, and we say, if the Apostle Paul, as one of the godliest men that ever lived on the face of this earth, could not do the things that he wanted to do, and he was the very example of godliness, and it, here he is, a Christian at his best, and he can't do what he wants to do, and I'm just a peon when it comes to the whole Christian thing. How in the world can I even can I think to even come close to him? And he was a total failure by his own words. So what am I supposed to make of my life? When it comes to my struggles with 
with sexual sin and with lust and with looking where I ought not to look, guys, and controlling my eyes and controlling my thoughts and what I view on the internet, what I view on television, what I see in the movies. I mean, what, if, if, I, if you have struggles over sports being a god to you or money being a god or fame being a god or people's approval being a god, how in the world do you think you can have any success if the Apostle Paul couldn't have any success? And basically, where we're left is right here. Well, I got some issues in my life, and I guess, you know, I'm just really not going to get a whole lot of victory over them in my life because Paul couldn't. And so I pretty much am going to have to wait till death before I'm really going to be able to deal with these things and get any real victory. And so I'm just a wretched man, and I can walk around, and I can just be this wretched man through the rest of my life, and I can pretty much vindicate it and I can find approval in it, and I can, I can, you know, not get too bent out of shape, because after all, Paul was that way, and he certainly went to heaven, and he certainly was, was a godly man, and so, you know, if he's the standard, I'm certainly not going to live up to that, and I can pretty much justify, you know, being a failure when it comes to battling sin. And you know what? If you think that people don't think the way I just said, you probably have not been saved long and have not talked to too many people because lots of people think this way. Lots of professing Christians justify and lots of people who don't truly have regeneration talk this way. I, I can remember, well, I think it was about last year maybe sometime, before we moved over to Salvation Army, there's a ministry our church has where we go to the homeless. And we used to go to Sam's shelter over on the west side of the city. And I can remember talking to a drunk one time. This guy was drunk. This guy was involved in all sorts of sexual sin. This guy did drugs. And, oh, but he was a Christian. And I got talking to him about his sin. He said, well, you know, the things I want to do, I just can't do. The things I don't want to do are the very things I find myself doing. Very convenient little quote of Scripture, wasn't it? What do you say to him? Well, I guess you're right. I guess you got me there. I guess you got me. Yep, if Paul was that way, you know, what, what, what should I expect from this guy? Now, let me tell you something. If you faithfully study context you're going to quickly run into some major problems major problems the first one that I see and of course you got to remember Romans 7 is sandwiched between Romans 6 and Romans 8 so we got some heavy duty context here folks the first problem you really have is all the way back in Romans 6 1 what are we going to say are we going to say that we should just sin? That grace might abound? Shall we sin? That grace might abound. I mean, hey, if Paul in Romans seven fourteen through 25 is speaking as a true Christian, we could just justify this way. Well, hey, you're saved by grace anyways, right? 
And so, so what if you can't kick evil? So what if all the things you want to do you never find yourself doing and evil always lies close at hand and I'm always doing the things I don't want to do? So what? I'm saved by grace, right? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's the big deal? I can sin. Grace is always greater than all my sin, right? No. So the problem you have is back in Romans 6, 1. What do we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? What's verse 2 say? By no means. How can we, who have died to sin, go on living in it? We've died to sin. Okay, here's the thing. Romans 6.2 says we've died to sin. We've died with Christ to sin. That's what the whole argument is. If he's died, we've died with him. He likens it to baptism, water baptism, which is a picture of our death and burial and resurrection. And just as Christ is risen, we rise in newness of life, don't we? Regeneration. Well, here's the thing. Romans 6, 11. If you have your Bibles open, you should go there and you should look at it. Richard, could you give me some more? Romans 6, 11. What does it say? Somebody want to read that to me? So you also must consider yourself dead and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, let me ask you this. We're dealing faithfully with context here. Is it possible for me to believe myself? And I'm asking this. I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. Is it possible to consider myself dead to sin? Well, let's ask this question. What does Paul mean there, dead to sin? Remember the question. Can I continue in sin? Shall I keep sinning? Dead to sin. What's the context in Romans 6? What's dead to sin mean? The power of sin. You guys see it in Romans 6.14? What does it say there? Somebody read 6.14. Okay. Sin, sin shall no longer have dominion. What's he talking about? Is he talking about whether I sin as much as I did before? Is that what he's talking about? He's surely talking about that. Look at Romans 6.17. He's talking about me stop sinning the way I used to sin when I was lost. What's Romans 6.17 say? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. There it is. You were once slaves of sin. That's in the lost day. Now you've become what? Obedient from the heart. To what? To the standard. The standard. This is the standard, folks. The Word of God. You once were slaves of sin. 
But now, Romans 6, 7 says, What's 6, 7 say? You're set free. You were slaves. You've now been set free. Set free so, so that what happens? I become obedient from the heart. Romans 6.14 Sin shall not have dominion. Romans 8.13 If by the flesh you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, look at Romans 6.22 What's the truth there? Okay, you're free from sin, a slave to God. You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Fruit to holiness or sanctification as some of our Bibles say, and the end of that is eternal life. What's the look, folks, there is a life that leads to eternal life. There is a certain life lived that leads to eternal life. It is a life of freedom from sin, slavery to God, bringing forth these fruits unto sanctification that leads to eternal life. There's a process. Is it living in sin? Nope. That Paul's answering that question all the way through. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And he says, look, you can't. You're dead to sin. You've died to sin. Being in Christ, united to Him, just as He rose, you've risen in newness of life. That's regeneration. You cannot continue in it. God made you obedient. God raised you from the dead. You are now alive to God. You're a slave to God. You're a slave to righteousness. Where you used to be a slave to sin and to unrighteousness. Okay, Romans 6.11. All that was said to get, give you an idea about what it means to be dead to sin. It means you are dead as a Christian to the power that sin once held over you. And what's Romans 6.11 say? So you, must, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. That word right there, consider. You know what Paul's hitting on right there? The way you think. Is he not? Yeah. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Now let me ask you this. If I consider myself to be no better than Romans seven fourteen through 25, am I considering myself dead to sin? If I consider myself a wretched man, if I consider myself that all I can ever do is do the evil that I don't want to do, and evil is always close at hand, and all the good that I really want to do, I can't do, and all the evil I don't want to do is what I always find myself doing, and that's the way I think about myself, and I go through life, and oh, wretched man that I am, am I being consistent? I'm asking this. Am I being consistent with Romans 6.11? Now, do you guys think it's possible to think Think myself, consider myself, reckon myself, contemplate myself dead to sin, while all the time in the same thought, think of myself like the man in Romans 7.19. Somebody read Romans 7.19. Wait, does anybody have a New King James or a New American Standard? What do you have? New King James. Would you please read Romans 7.19 from the New King James? <clears throat> for the good that I will to do, I do not do. Okay, now stop there. That's a pretty blanket statement. 
He says, the good he wanted to do, he does not do. Now listen, he doesn't say, sometimes I don't do it. He says, I don't do it. Now you could say, well, yeah, but could he mean that and not mean it in a total way? Well, maybe, maybe, but just listen to what he's saying. He doesn't say, as a Christian, I stumble once in a while. He's saying, the good that I would, I don't do. Okay, now, keep going, brother. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. What a word. That I practice. Guys, a person who practices evil in all our Bibles is not a Christian. You go study First John. Who is your father if you practice sin? The devil. The devil. This guy, the reason I wanted him to go from the King, New King James or the NAS is because they accurately and rightly use the term practice which is what that word is, and it has that emphasis in the original. This man is practicing sin. Now, I hope you all see there's a problem developing. Now let's move a little further. In Romans 6.14, Paul makes a statement that he realizes is going to rile the Jew. He realizes he's made a risky statement. And he also realizes that he needs to more fully explain that statement. You see what it is? It, it concerns the law. In Romans 6.14, he says, Sin shall not have dominion over you because you are what? No, you're not under law. You're under grace. Now he realizes he needs to explain about not being under law. So as you break into Romans 7, he picks up again his discourse about law. Now what does he say about it? He uses a little bit of an illustration about marriage, right? His whole point is this. Man and woman married. The man dies. Is a woman free to marry again? Yes. Why? Because death sets us free from relationships. Now, what he's got in mind is this. Law, us, Christ. You see, in the marriage thing, the husband dies so that the two people left alive can marry. In the Christian illustration, two people die and one stays alive and the two that die marry. I hope you see that. In marriage, the first husband dies so that the second husband and the wife can get married. In the Christian life, Christ dies and we die with him and the law is left alive and we marry Christ. But the whole point is, death 
releases us from relationships. The whole idea is the first husband was the law, and we are now married to Christ. Now watch this, folks. Look at Romans 7, 4. What's happened to our relationship with law? We've died to it. We are no longer under law because we have died to law. We have died to law. Now, depending on your translation, some will say married to, joined to. The whole point is we've been connected with Christ, right? We've been married to Christ. We're no longer married to the law. We've been freed from the law. In order for what to happen? What has to happen to us? Or what is it that in our, do, in our release from law, what is it that happens? We're married to Christ in order for what to happen. What does Romans 7, 4 say? To belong to Him. To belong to Him in order to do what? Bear fruit. You know what's very interesting about this? Remember last week we looked at Galatians 5? And remember what the Galatians were doing? They were reverting back to the law. And you know what was happening? Instead of becoming more righteous, they were becoming fleshly. Remember that? He warns them against biting each other and being devoured by each other. And the that's what happens. Folks, I'll tell you this right now. You ever, some of you aren't in our church. Some of you, a day will come when you may go somewhere else. But I'll tell you this, you ever get caught up in a religious group of professing Christians that basically put an overemphasis on the law and on little legal requirements and a list of do's and don'ts, and you know what ends up? You end up with fleshly people, and you end up with people who are not more righteous. I'll tell you what the key to righteousness is. Does that say we? Does that mean we abandon law? Does that mean we abandon uh, the scriptures and the instruction of righteousness? It doesn't mean that at all. But listen, Second Corinthians three eighteen tells us the path to righteousness is degree by degree being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. When we behold Him. Setting Christ before you. you remember how Paul talked to the Galatians? What? Did, did, you guys, did you guys have all this happen to you in the beginning by works of the law? He says, no, in the beginning it was by faith. You guys came by faith. And the whole point is this. You have to continue by faith. You don't continue by going back to the law. Listen. The old Puritans sometimes taught this, and the old Reformers, and it's not right. It is error. They would say things like this. We come to Christ, and He turns us back to Moses. That's unbiblical. You know what? You cannot be justified by law, but you cannot be sanctified by law either. What does it say? Romans 7, 4. Does it say you can be sanctified by law? It says you have to be separated from that law, divorced from that law, dead to that law in order to be married to Christ. And that's the way you bring forth fruits of righteousness. That's the way. It's in Christ. It's looking to Him. It's faith in Christ. 
Now let me ask you this. I'm dead to law. Paul, you've said some risky things in a Jewish climate of your day. They, you know, they attacked Christ. When Christ came in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts talking, you know, he starts setting forth these principles of his kingdom, and they were always on him about the law. And remember what he said? I mean, he, he said he did not come to do away with it, he came to fulfill it. Let me ask you guys this. In Romans 7, verse 4, we're dead to law, married to Christ, in order to bring forth fruits of righteousness. What does verse 5 say? Let me ask you guys something. Well, let me tell you something. Romans 7, verses 4, 5, and 6 are the keys to interpreting the entire chapter as well as right on out into the first four verses and even beyond in Romans 8. He gives us concise summary statements and then over the next chapter and right on into Romans 8 he reiterates in a fuller way the truths he stated right there now let's really nail down what verses 4, 5, and 6 have to say to us verse 4 I've got to be dead to law, married to Christ, in order to bring fruits of righteousness for God. You guys see that? Now that's very consistent with where we find ourselves coming off of Romans 6, right? Romans 6.22. You've got to die to sin, free from it, slave to God, bringing forth these fruits unto sanctification, the end is eternal life. Okay, you see that. He begins to enlarge on that. Now he's got a specific emphasis on law. You as a Christian have to die to it. Be married to Christ to bring forth fruit. That's the path to sanctification. That's the path to a fruitful life. Now here's where he's headed. Romans 7, 5. You see what the problem is in Romans 7, 5? He's now going to give you a picture of of, is it a saved person or a lost person? Lost. How do we know that? There's death. But what else is true? Let's really identify this lost guy. What are all the things that are said about the lost man? Living in the flesh. Okay, first, flesh. That shouldn't surprise us because... The first half of Romans 8 is all about the lost man is what? In the flesh, saved man's in the spirit. First half of Romans 8 is all about that. He's going to go back to that. Let me ask you this. Verse 6. 
Is that a saved man or a lost man? Saved. How do you know that? Serving in the newness of the Spirit. What did he die to? Died to the law. Died to the law. Serves in the newness of the Spirit. In Romans 7, 5, he was of the flesh. Right? The guy in 5, you guys all admit, is lost. He's got death stamped on him. He's in the flesh. And sinful passions are aroused by what? The law. This guy is under law. He's dead in sin. He's lost. And what happens when a lost man confronts law? Sin. Sin. Sinful passions spring out of it. The guy in seven, he doesn't serve anymore under the old letter of the law. He serves in the newness of the Spirit. Now just let me ask you guys this. Is the guy in Romans seven fourteen to 25 of the flesh or of the Spirit? He's of the flesh. Is the guy in Romans seven fourteen through 25 bringing forth fruits of righteousness? Or is he being faced with the law and only seeing sinful passions spring forth? Yeah. Let me tell you something, guys. Romans 8, 4 gives us a beautiful picture of the Christian life. What is it? What is it? What is it? Somebody read Romans 8, 4. In order that the righteous uh, requirements of the law might be in us. Well, stop right there. You know what? Some people look at that and they say, the righteous requirement of the law. Well, Christ died on the cross to perfectly... I, I, it, was the, it was the perfect fulfillment of a righteous life and a perfect death by which He can impute to me perfection, Right? That's justification. A lot of people look at Romans 8, 4 and they say, well, that's what that is. The righteous requirement of the law. But that's not what it is. We're not talking justification here. We're talking sanctification. And we have been all the way through here. Now listen. Look at Romans 8, 3. Now let me give you an exact rendering. The ESV adds some things that probably shouldn't be added. God did what the law could not do. Now, here, here it is, folks. Is the law good? Yes. yes. That's what he says in Romans 7. 7.14. It's spiritual. He says the law is good. It's just. It's holy. But the problem with the law isn't that it's bad. The problem with the law is... It can't sanctify us. But God did what the law could never do. What was it the law could never do with the guy in Romans 7? It could never change him. 
It's the perfect standard, but whenever you've got a guy of the flesh who's sold under sin, confronted by the law, all he does is evil. Because man at heart is a rebel. You see, that's what he says. The, the law that said, thou shalt not covet, came to him, and he said all it did was stir up him all sorts of covetousness. But God did what the law could never do. And you know what he did? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he sent him here, folks, a condemned flesh, or he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? To set us free, folks, that we might in our lives be those who fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. You say, is that right? Yeah. Romans 8.13 says it. By the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. In, in Romans 13 verses 8 and verses 10, you have the same kind of, of uh, terminology being used. The what's the righteous requirement of the law? What is it? Somebody read to me Romans eight thir or Romans thirteen verse eight, nine, and ten. And tell me, answer me. Are we supposed to, as Christians, are we expected to, are we commanded to keep the righteous requirement of the law? Can somebody read that? 13.8 Oh no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. There it is. There is your fulfillment of the law right there. Is that what we're expected to do as Christians? Yes. To love? And you know what First John says? If you don't love the brethren, if you don't show forth love, that's the greatest evidence you don't belong to God. Listen. The very fulfilling of the law is exactly why Christ was sent. Not just so that we can have this perfection given to us by Christ, which is justification, which that's true, but also to make us into a people that practically, by our lives, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Look, Romans 8, 7. What does it say? There, there you've got a lost person, hostile to God, and what's true of them? They can't keep God's law. They don't keep it. They cannot. That's a lost person. But you're not in the flesh. You're what? In the Spirit. And the whole point is what? You no longer are in a hostile relationship to God. And you can keep his words. If Christ said to you, if you love me, what? You can't keep them. You're an old wretched man and you're just pitiful and pathetic. Is that what he said? If you love me, do what? What does 1 John 2 verse 4 say? If you say that you know him and you do not keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. Folks, 
I'm going to be talking about sexual sin and overcoming. I'm going to be talking about idolatry, the kinds that young people face today in the weeks ahead, and overcoming. I'll tell you this. If you believe yourself to be a wretched man and to be defeated and to be the person who can never do the good he wants to do, you have already lost the battle. Romans 6.11 says you need to consider yourselves dead to sin. And if you do not think right and start this battle by thinking right, you'll never win it. You'll never win it. Paul knows perfectly well that we live according to what we believe. And if you do not believe that you are more than conquerors in Christ, if you do not believe that you must, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body in order to live, if you do not believe you are free and you have been made obedient from the heart to this Word, if you do not believe that sin will not have dominion over you, if you believe you're some old wretched Roman 7 man, then you've lost the battle. You've lost it. you see what I'm saying? Do you see where I'm coming from? Now wait. Now Somebody's going to say, well, what about those two things you said? Why does Paul all of a sudden go present tense on us? And that's a good question. And that's a valid question. Well, the whole point is this. There is what's known as a historic present. A historical present. Let me just explain. If I say to you guys, well, look. Back when I was in high school, I there was there was a time where I got in trouble with my chemistry teacher, and I am standing there, and I am thinking, and you see I'm using present tense, and none of you are baffled by it, none of you are confused by it. Look, right here in the context, Paul says. There was a time when I was alive without the law, and the law came, and I died. And he says, all of a sudden, I was confronted by this commandment that said, don't covet. And he said, I just found there was covetousness all over the place. He set the historical context for us. So for him to begin to talk in a present tense shouldn't overly baffle us. It's not that confusing if, if we look at it that way. Okay, what about the other thing? What about him saying, I delight in the law? I mean, isn't... Come on. Do, Christ, do non-Christians delight in the law? Jews love the law. When, when he describes himself in Philippians chapter 3, he says when it came to the law, he was blameless. He loved it. All you got to do is go back to Romans chapter 2. Paul is talking to the Jew. And he says, you folks make your boast in the law. And yet he says, the very things you guys teach and command, you don't do yourselves. They boasted in it. Did they delight in it? Yes. In an outward fashion, they did. And even many times they kept it in an external sense to the place where they were blameless. Did Paul delight in it as a Pharisee? You better believe he did. Did he want to try to keep it? Did he want to live up to this standard? Yes, even before it came under conviction, he did. Now it came on, the Spirit of God opened his eyes. He saw the law as he never saw it before. Now he saw, I'm in trouble. 
Now look. The guy in Romans 7, 5 is of the flesh. Sinful passions are aroused by the law and he sees the whole deal ending in death. Now here's the thing. Romans 7, 13 he asks the question, what is killing me? Is it the law that kills me? Is it the law that's bringing death? And he says, no. It's my sin. And then he answers in verse 14. He says, look, the law isn't killing me. The law is spiritual. Again, he's reiterating. The law is good. He's defending the law. But he's just saying, look, death, the problem here, folks, with death in a lost person, their death, their eternal death, is a result of sin. Taking the law and just erupting in all sorts of sinful passions. He says, look, the law can't sanctify, but the law isn't bad. I'm not dying because of law. I'm dying because of sin. The law is spiritual. I am the problem. I am of the flesh. I am sold under sin. Is a Christian sold under sin? You know what? The term sold there is not the generic term in the Bible for sell. It's the term that specifically means sold as a slave. Now, after all of what we saw in Romans 6, <coughs> is a true Christian sold as a slave to sin? They're free. Look, somebody read Romans 6, 18 and 19. What is Romans 6, 18, 19, even 20? 21. Read those five verses, somebody. I'm free from sin. Am I, a, am I sold as a slave to sin? I'm free from it. Keep going, brother. Have become slaves of righteousness. I'm now a slave of righteousness, not of sin. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity. We were slaves of impurity, but we're not anymore. And to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We're now slaves of righteousness. For when, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were slaves of sin. Uh, but the, but what fruit were you getting at the at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of thi those things is death. Okay, stop right there. See, the end of those things is death. Romans seven thirteen. What's killing me? I'm of the flesh. I'm sold as a slave under sin. I'm not the guy that's free. 
from sin. I'm not the guy that's a slave of righteousness. This guy is a slave of sin. That's what's killing him. He realizes the end of these things is death. It's sin that's killing him. Now look, I've made a good enough case, I think, to convince everyone in this room. If we don't start the fight with sin, sexual sin is a big one. If we don't start the fight with jealousy and envy and pride and anger and lust and greed and idolatry from the standpoint of being free from sin, then we just simply do not have a foundation to build on. Look, I am not teaching perfection. And I am not, I'm not saying that dead to sin is this imaginary world that we don't have struggles Romans 6.12 is definitely words to people who are going to have to fight. Romans 8.13 are words to people that have to fight. But the whole thing is, you will conquer. Will you struggle? Yes. Will you fall? Yes. Are you going to fail? Yes. But in the end... The practice of your life is going to be one of righteousness. In the end, you will not be slaves of sin and it will not have dominion over you. You will conquer. You may lose battles, but you will win the war. And you will move and you will progress forward and you will have more victories than you will have failures. And the overall pattern of your life, if you're a true child of God, will be one where you are at war with sin, you are doing battle with it, and you will put it to death. God makes you into sin murderers. And if that is not characteristic of your life, you are not a Christian. And Romans 8.13 is the guarantee of that. Folks, you must consider yourselves dead to sin before you get to Romans 6.12. You've got to come to grips with Romans 6.11. Before you don't allow sin to reign, in these mortal bodies, you've got to think right. You've got to consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, that's all I'm going to say today. If anybody has questions, feel free to ask. I mean, if you, if you want more discussion on this, if there's points that aren't clear to you, if you'd like some things elaborated on, um, look, you are going to come across people that are going to tell you this is a saved person in Romans 7. And some of them are going to be good brothers and sisters. But I'm telling you, in the battle over sin, it is critical that we see and believe and think right as we engage in this warfare. Uh, the only question I have is uh, Romans seven fifteen at the very end it says what I do is the very thing I hate. Like, like okay, so you're saying that? Is he saying like the sins that he commits, he hates them? Or? 
Yes, he sees the law as a standard that he wants to keep. Now, you have to remember this about him. Paul has, he's, Paul is writing as a Christian. He's describing himself as a lost man, but not as a typical lost man, because he's come under conviction. What's happened is, all of a sudden, the law has come. When he says, there was a time that I was alive without the law, what he means is not that he didn't have the law. Obviously, as a Jew, he knew the law. When he says he was alive, he was basically self-righteous. He was proud. He felt good about himself. He felt like he was making it. He was succeeding. And then the law came in power. And he came under conviction. And he saw himself for what he was. And he's complaining. I, I tried to do it. But in the flesh, all the more I could achieve even though I saw the standard and I had to... Look! This is not even foreign to us as Gentiles. Come on! As a lost man, you know what I did? There I was, head over heels in sin, and I would make these resolutions. When I get out of high school and I go to college, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to quit doing drugs. I'm going to quit living this way. And then I got in college. Okay, when I get out of college, then I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to do this... And then I got out of college, and it only got worse. And you know what? I began to cave into saying, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to. Guys, as lost people, you had ideas about doing good things. There are times when the law appealed to you. When my mom told me when I was a little kid, do the commandments and you'll get to heaven, I went and looked them up in the Bible, and I meant to do them. I looked at him and I said, I want to go to heaven. And I saw it as a good thing. And I saw it as a desirable thing. And I saw it as a thing I wanted to do. But could I do it? Now, the more I was confronted by it, the more I did them. Because at heart, we're rebels. See, we're, sometimes we get this idea about delighting in the law and thinking we want to keep the law and things we want to do. But as a lost person, we did want to do that. There were standards that we've thought about meeting. And yet... For all our good intentions, every time we were faced by the law, all it did was stir in us more rebellion. All we found ourselves doing is not doing the very things we resolved to do. Look, people make New Year's resolutions all the time. And a lot of those resolutions, in a very, in a very uh, objective sense, are good. Do they keep them? Most people break them a week in. It's not because the standard itself wasn't good. It's because they're dead in sin. They can't do it. They can't pull it off. But you see in Romans 8, 4, God sent His Son to free us from the... Not just to justify us by His own righteousness. He came to give us the Spirit of God to free us so that we no longer live under that dead letter but in the power of the Spirit to become those who practically are characterized as a life of those who fulfill the requirements of the law. That's why Christ can say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. He says, only those who do the will of my Father will enter the kingdom.
See, this comes at us all over the scriptures. That's what we hit on last week. Galatians 5.24 If you belong to Christ, you've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You don't live in it anymore. You've crucified it. Oh, folks, if you begin to think this way, this is the mindset of those who conquer sin. Amen. Okay. Any other questions? I have one. Oh. 717 through 20. That's my question. He's no longer the one doing it. Well, think about that even if it was a Christian or not a Christian. I mean, is that... If we're going to say... If we're going to write it off to um, either one, we ought to have problems with that text. Right? You see what I'm saying? Obviously, Paul is not saying as a Christian or as a non-Christian, that we're not to blame if we sin. What he's saying is, think with me here, he's almost viewing sin as outside of himself, right? Which is not, it's, it's not foreign to the way he's been speaking. He sees sin as this culprit, sin as this force that is seeking to compel him to... I mean, what's, what's the real issue when the law comes? Sin comes in and seeks to take occasion by the law to make him break it. And so he's, he has been viewing sin as almost this force outside of himself all the way through here. So it's not really strange for him to speak in this sense. It, it, whether he's speaking Christian or non-Christian, it ought to make us raise our eyebrows. But it's kind of... It's kind of consistent with the way he's been speaking. So, Folks, we're not wretched men. Romans 8 ends. 8.35. I mean, folks, we're talking more than conquerors. We are not these wretched men. We are not these defeated people. The Spirit of God in us has made us into something that can't be imitated by this world. Any other questions? Okay, well that's... Uh, I'm, uh, so, after going through this and in context, we obviously see that this is the center. What are some of the arguments that the uh, outside of The two big ones are the present tense and him delighting in the law. And a lot of people immediately see... Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. The biggest is the practical way the Christian feels. There's not a Christian in this room that hasn't felt. I am wretched. Look what I did. Man, the good I want to do, I, I didn't do it. 
There's not a Christian in this room that hasn't looked at themselves and thought, I'm a miserable failure. There isn't a Christian in this room that hasn't had the devil sneak right up to their ear and say, look how pathetic you are. Look how wretched you are. Do you think Christ wants anything to do with you? The biggest issue in all of this is our own experience. Here's the thing. What I, I am not saying we all need to imagine that we never have problems with sin. I'm just saying we need to interpret Scripture by Scripture and Scripture by context, not Scripture by our experience. What is the experience? Galatians 6 says there will be times that we will seek to help others who are sinning. Those of you that are spiritual, you help those. First John uh, 2 John 2.1 Little children, I write to you that you sin not, but if you do sin, you, you have an advocate with the Father. There is recognition throughout the scriptures that, that Christians can and will sin. But here's the thing. The scripture speaks about Christian sinning as falls or stumbles. Though the righteous man fall seven times. The lost man is immersed in sin. He's dead in it. The Christian falls but see, the whole picture of a fall or a stumble is that they're coming down off of some place where they live in and they rise up. Though they fall seven times, what do they do every time? They rise. You see, the whole point is the Christian lives here. They live in another realm. They live with a new nature. They've risen in newness of life. They're born again. The seed of God is in them so that they cannot continue sinning. They have a new nature. But practically, we've felt like the guy in Romans 7. So, this is the problem. Most people tend to interpret the text by their experience, not by the context. Look, Romans 6.11 is critical in this. If we don't think right, Paul deals with the way you think before he deals with the battle itself. It's key because in all of our Christian life, we have to believe right. We're people that are called to live by faith, and faith has everything to do with the way, what we trust, what we believe, what we think. So I'm not saying that you guys won't have issues and you won't have difficulties and at times you might not feel this way. This, this is the biggest hurdle with some people. It does not matter what Romans 6 says to them. It doesn't matter what Romans 7 says to them. It doesn't matter what Romans 8 says to them. In their estimation, they have felt this way as a Christian and you cannot beat it into their head. Any, They are going to take it that way. And they are determined to take it that way. And, but the sad thing is, the very people that have said that to me are the very people that say, that's the way I am and I can't do anything about it. You see, it's a defeatist mentality. That is not the mentality that the Christian is supposed to have. And that is not the picture of Christianity that Paul is setting forth here. He's setting forth a picture of a defeated person who is under 
the law. You know what he says? With my mind, I serve the law. Let me ask you this. In Romans 7, 6, is serving the law a good thing? See, a lot of people say, well, serving the law with my mind, well, that, see, that's a good thing. Serving the law in any context is not a good thing. Being free from the law is a good thing. The guy in Romans 7, 6, who serves the law is not a saved person. The saved person has been set free from serving under the old letter of the law and is now set free in the Spirit. You know one thing very interesting about Romans 7, 14 through 25? There's not a single mention of the Spirit. Why? Because this man is not living in the realm of Spirit. He's living in the realm of law. Oh, brethren, once, once it all comes together in context, it just... It's, it's an, it, you know, it comes alive. Amen.